Well, thanks for the invitation to be with you uh, again. It always is good to be invited the first time, but it's certainly better and more reassuring to be invited a second or third time. I was given a free ball for preachers. Well, that phrase means the same as to, to everyone, but for preachers, it's a, a choice of passage. And in my own church back in Perth, uh, we've been going through the upper room ministry of the Lord Jesus in John's gospel. And there is the reference for you, and we're going to read the scriptures just in a minute. Now, this is the first time I've preached on this because I actually had one week's holiday, and I do get holidays, which is great. Um, and someone else spoke in this passage, but for the sake of my own studies and continuity, I prepared this for you. So I'm looking back on this passage in John 14, but we do trust that the Lord will bless us as we come before His Word. I do believe it's relevant, of course, for all times, all ages, for the church to consider the work of the Holy Spirit. But interestingly, as the upper room ministry begins in the life of the Lord Jesus, it's recorded in John, and we have chapter 13. And interestingly, it says, before the feast of Passover. Now, we always take these little indications of the sovereign work of God, and we trust that He will have uh, many in mind to address today as we consider His Word. So, the text begins, and of course, this is the Lord Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, 
for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And so the background to the upper room ministry of the Lord Jesus is that it all takes place just the day before he is to be crucified. If you like, it's his last will and testament. There is a very intimate setting with just 11 of the disciples. Judas has been in the upper room, but he has left uh, with the permission of the Lord Jesus to go and fulfill what he had purposed in his heart, which was to betray the Lord Jesus. So Judas has left, and now in the intimacy of that setting in the upper room, Jesus is alone with his 11 disciples, and he wants to teach them so many things in these last few hours of his time on earth. And so he gives to them, those who are truly his disciples, who are following him, who are committed to him, he gives the promise of the Holy Spirit. He also inaugurates the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper for our Lord Jesus, but the Lord's Supper as we have it, communion or the Eucharist, if you would prefer. The upper room ministry also contains the longest prayer of the New Testament, eventually when we come to John and chapter 17. But a great Scottish preacher living just along the road from Perth uh, in Dundee, I believe you had Jim Turrent from Dundee as well. There's a few good preachers there. But Sinclair Ferguson written a, a little book about the upper room ministry, and he has the strap line, Five Wonderful Hours with the Master. It's a sublime piece of Scripture, and where the Lord Jesus opens his heart, and what he says touches the true believers. As John records it, he has a definite structure in mind, just as he has with the rest of his gospel. He has said that he's writing his gospel for a particular purpose, so he's very intentional. And if you're a little bit like me, liking, liking structure and process and how things connect, a bit OCD, then John's gospel is for you. And as we see this in this particular section, at the beginning of what we call chapter 14, John tops and then tails the teaching of the Lord Jesus with these parallel statements, including, let not your heart be troubled. And you'll see that that's a very important part of why the Lord Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He confirms again in the following section, again, paralleled as he closes his ministry uh, about the Father and his relationship with the Father and the words that he speaks. These words that the Lord Jesus used were commissioned by God the Father and intended to be for all time 
words of comfort as well as instruction for us. And then, of course, he emphasizes again, if you say you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience is a mark not just of conforming to a set of regulations. Obedience is from the heart, a desire to follow closely with the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus says, obedience is a mark of your love. And when we see other disciples of the Lord Jesus, even in our own day and age, as they are obedient to the Lord Jesus, whether in the act of baptism or in breaking bread together and following His commandment in communion, or whether it's meeting together, whatever it might be, desiring to know Him in our lives, it's motivated, or it should be, not by some orthodoxy, but out of a passion and a love for the Lord Jesus. And that's the context in which He is speaking. Then He talks about the world, and there's a parallel statement. So, you know what's coming, don't you? What's the central point of this chiasm? I'll not explain that. If you want to know what the word is, we can chat after. But what's the central point of his teaching? The Lord Jesus' love, manifested in his desire always to be with his people. A promise for all time, a promise for every child of God, whether in the darkest moments of persecution, as is happening all over our world, or in the darkness of bereavement, of disease, of loss of employment, of fractured family, a broken marriage, I will not leave you. I will come to you. And the promise to the disciples who have the prospect then of the Lord Jesus going from them, He says, I'm going to be with you. It's going to be in a different way, but I'm going to be with you. Child of God, disciple of the Lord Jesus, believer in Christ, He is with you. He will not forsake you. And no matter what you're facing at this moment, He is with you. And that's the wonderful promise that the Lord Jesus gives in the context of His announcement of His departure. But He's going to be with them in a very particular way. For He says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you. And He's going to give the Holy Spirit. You see how all of the Godhead are involved in their care for you and for me as followers of the Lord Jesus. God has already demonstrated that He's the great giver. You know, there are those who would paint a picture of God the Father as some terrorizing, vindictive judge. Now, of course, He hates sin, but He loves the sinner. Of course, God did not want us to find our distance from Him through the choices that we make, 
and through the sin that was brought in by Adam. God didn't design us for that. And in order to solve that problem of human creation, we read one of the most sublime texts of the Scriptures. God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. God is a giving God. The Lord Jesus says in Luke, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And so, even today, as we come in our prayers, privately or publicly, prayer works like that. We ask the Father, but the Lord Jesus has already asked the Father, and He represents us before the Father in His current session on His throne in heaven beside the heavenly potentate. And the Lord Jesus is there interceding for us. And what does He do? He gives us the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, He's described by the Lord Jesus in a particular and unique way. He's described as another helper. Now, the word that is in the original is a word that's translated in different ways in English. If you have your own version there, you might see that it's translated as counselor, helper, advocate. There are all kinds of words that we use in English to try and get the full sense of the work of the Holy Spirit. But the word that's used is parakletos, and he's described as another parakletos, another like whom. Well, John is going to go on and say to his little children, the disciples who he's looking after in a local church context, and he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a helper. We have a paracletos, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the Lord Jesus is saying, I'm going to send another helper, just exactly the same as I am, because He's the other person of the Godhead. And all of the Godhead is involved in dealing with the major problem we have in our relationship with God, and that is our sin. God gave, Jesus died, and the Holy Spirit comes. And if we have an issue or problem with our sin, then there is a perfect remedy in the person of the Lord Jesus and in His work on Calvary. But as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, the other helper whom God has given now as a permanent, a permanent member of the Godhead dwelling with us and in us, He says, and He will be with you forever. Paul is going to reflect on that to the church at Ephesus, and he says that, do you not know that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Elsewhere, Paul is going to say, 
if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. That's my paraphrase. You're none of His, is what he says. The Holy Spirit is He who is required for producing life within us, making faith come alive in the finished work of Christ, and He makes it effective. And we are born again from above, not by our own volition or by our own actions, but solely by God Himself. On the face of it, it looks as if we choose God. But let's rest in this. The Bible teaches us that God chose you and God chose me. And Jesus died for all, but He died for you, and He died for me. And the Holy Spirit is given for all those who are to be incorporated into the church of God worldwide, this great edifice, not of bricks and mortar or stone, but of living stones. And you and I are members of this wonderful edifice. You may have seen me taking a picture because Crescent Church is an impressive building. It really is. I don't go to many places with such a beautiful pipe organ. But this isn't the church. It's only one of tens of thousands of buildings. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you're incorporated as a living body where Christ is the head, and we've been brought into fellowship with each other, but membership of Christ with each other. And we are all necessary for each other. And we've been promised that the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. And what does He do when He comes? He dwells with you and will be in you. Now, that's an incredible promise that He will be with us. I don't know if you are actively pursuing the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You claim to be a believer. You have come to know salvation, and yet you're not pursuing holiness in every area of living, not aware of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to set you apart in every sphere and in every area. You know, it's something that requires discipline. The reading of God's Word, the praying to Him, the meeting with each other, the confession of our sin, the pursuit of holiness, because we know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that He is proximate, but He is intimate. He dwells within us. And if the edifice which He is constructing across all of the globe, all of those believers from every part of, uh, of earth are all being constructed into a single building, that is something that is quite remarkable. But it's only happening because, not because He is simply proximate, 
but because he is intimate, because he is within us. I've had the privilege of traveling to various parts of the world, and you know there is no greater delight to come across Christians. Now, uh, my late wife used to uh, criticize me just a little bit because I was always expecting to meet Christians. And I would say, do you think they're a Christian? Do you think we should say something to this taxi driver or, or whatever it might be? But you know, even taxi drivers can be Christians. And even when driving through Las Vegas, it was quite remarkable. But in every corner of the globe that you go to, and you, when you start conversing, and there is something that rings in your heart, and you have an immediate connection. There is nothing like this in, in the entire world, whether you're a Freemason, I hope not, or whether you're a member of a bowling club, or the Rotary, or, or whatever it might be. There is no club that can mirror the living organism that is the church of God. And we recognize each other in our conversation, our priorities, because the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But then the Lord Jesus says, what should characterize people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? They should show the marks of the family. Now, when you look at me, you would think, most of my progenitors, my ancestors, my predecessors, they were all minors because they couldn't grow vertically. They just had to grow horizontally. Now, I can't even claim that because my father was six foot three. So I simply have a height problem, not a weight problem. But we show the marks of family, don't we? You can identify, if you saw my sister, you would know immediately, oh, I, she's Jim Crooks' sister. So it should be in the family of God. Maybe not physical resemblance, of course, but the traits. And one of these most important is truth, living according to the truth. And so like the first comforter, the first advocate, the first helper who claims for himself, the Lord Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the definite article, and the life. And so when the Holy Spirit himself comes, he said that he will lead you into all truth. And he is the spirit of truth. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And only the Spirit of God can be active in salvation, and when we call out to God and calling on the name of God and trusting in the Lord Jesus, and when by virtue of our response 
and a simple act of faith. It is the Holy Spirit who makes that effective in our lives and who comes and imparts the truth. Now, we've got to be very careful and not step over the line into arrogance. And of course, there will always be room for debate about the big issues of life, but the source of our truth is not opinion, but rather from the Word of God, because this is God-breathed. And so, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And how does truth manifest itself? It's taught by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, it says remembrance, and of course, there is a context for the disciples for that. How will you remember the words of the Lord Jesus unless you've read them? It's a simple thing, isn't it? We need to read the Word of God. And the discipline, the daily discipline of reading the Word of God is absolutely essential for growing as disciples. And the Holy Spirit will implant that Word in our lives. He will sow it in the, the, the soil of our lives and our hearts and our minds. And He will use it but it's got to go in there first, and that requires discipline. And every day, you make sure you read the Word of God. I'm not going to say read the Bible in a year. You can do that if you like. But read the Bible to hear the voice of God. The disciples, they had that unique experience when therefore he was raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus, his disciples remembered that he had said this. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. The Lord Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And so the apostles, building on the teaching of the Lord Jesus, and the foundation is established through them. And of course, we come to the Word of God, seeking only the truth of God, depending on the Spirit of God Himself. And I'm so conscious that as week by week, having the responsibility to open the Word of God and to try to teach it, that the agony spent, or the agony of studying for the 14, 15 hours, whatever it might be, preparing a message is so that I will know what the Holy Spirit intends by what He has left on record. And where I'm uncertain, I'll say that I'm uncertain. But of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is so critical. And we should know Him as we read and study each day. And then there is the condition of obedience to make the work of the Holy Spirit effective. The Lord Jesus says in this passage, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Obedience is required for evidence of faith, and obedience is prompted by love for Christ 
and that reflects faith that's founded on a relationship. The reason we want to practice truth is because our lives are to be lived as a sacrifice to our Lord Jesus, empowered by the indwelling Spirit to bring glory to God upon the earth. What a high calling we've been given as disciples of the Lord Jesus. And then he says that into all of this context, he gives us the blessing of peace. He says, peace I leave with you. Even in the turmoil of his departure, he's saying, I'm going to give you peace. Now, first of all, of course, the Lord Jesus is the only one who can bring peace with God in heaven. And elsewhere in the Scriptures, in Colossians, it says that having made peace through the blood of His cross. And peace is won by a hard battle amidst blood and gore and terrible oppression and beating and the awful scenes of Calvary, and yet peace is given. And through Calvary's cross alone in this world, we can have peace with God. And coming to faith in Him is that gateway then to no subjective peace. And Paul will talk also to believers. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Would we know peace that is subjective despite all our circumstances? Then we need to know the peace that comes through faith in Christ and having our sins permanently dealt with and coming and submitting to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, we're told that the Lord Jesus gives us His peace. Second Thessalonians say, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. And this gives the lie to all religion. Because when we come to God the Father through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is all about a relationship. We don't develop relationships without spending time with people, without getting to know them, without speaking. And one of the guys that I've been uh, working with over the past uh, two years, just getting to that point where we have a conversational relationship, not so much with each other, but a conversational relationship with the living God of heaven. And Jim Crooks isn't he special because it's for everyone to have that consciousness of the presence of God in every moment of life, and so that all of life and all of our days is one prayerful conversation where God also speaks to us primarily in His Word. So, in summary, in this teaching of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus knows that there is opposition. The ruler of this world is coming. 
and the ruler of this world is here, and he will want to take away these words. But the ruler of this world has no claim on Jesus and has no claim upon the believer. There's no claim on the believer because we've been freed from sin and the claims of sin. It is possible to know freedom. So let me ask the question first to, to all our hearts. Do we know the other helper personally, the Holy Spirit who has been promised and who has come? We claim salvation. We confess Christ. Then know this, that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. How well do we know Him and converse with Him? Can you in your circumstances see that He dwells with you? Is He teaching you daily? And is your life marked by the love of Christ in obeying Him? And do you therefore know the objective peace of Christ and living in the subjective peace of Christ? And at the end of that teaching, Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. And what were they to face? The Lord Jesus was to face the trauma of the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples were so horrified and terrified that they would abandon him. And then they would come back to him. And they discovered through the power of the Holy Spirit, given that special way on Pentecost, reflecting the great feast and given to Israel. And in Pentecost, they were to know the living, indwelling Spirit of God himself. And on the strength of the power that was given through the Holy Spirit, they were to conquer the world. They even reached Scotland and Northern Ireland. And the purpose in that is so that today we might come to know Christ. We might have a relationship with God the Father and that we might know the fullness of the Spirit of God living within us. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard for us just to capture what it was like for these disciples in that upper room. But we thank you for the words that are left in such fullness, recorded by John, presented by him, but yet, Father, the living word, authored by the Spirit of God himself, and we pray, our Father, that this word will abide within us and it will bring fruit in our lives, in our walk with you. Perhaps for some it will be the work of regeneration, to be born again, to come to know the fullness of the Spirit of God in bringing salvation, making the work of Calvary effective in our hearts, or perhaps, Father, it's for those who have become Christians and yet whose love might be not in full fire, whose obedience is 
is not full. Father, speak to my own heart too. Speak to our hearts as we thank you for the presence of the Spirit of God within us and among us. We commit your word to you for your blessing alone to bring it to fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.